From the Southeast Florida studios of the law firm Trip Scott in Fort Lauderdale, this is Politics and Sunshine, a continuing series of interviews with local and national subject matter experts tackling the issues that make you stand up. In this episode, Trip Scott CEO Ed Poswali talks to Fox News senior political analyst and author Juan Williams. Here's your host, Ed Poswali. Today, we're honored to have Juan Williams. Juan is one of the leading political analysts in the country, Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and NPR. But most of you probably recognize him from Fox News as he serves as a senior political analyst and is regularly seen with Brett Baer on the special report and Fox News Sunday. Juan, welcome and thanks for joining us. What a pleasure to meet you, Ed. You're a, you're a hero down in South Florida, so it's good for me to make a connection. My mother will thank you for that. uh, (laughs) (laughs) We have midterms coming up and clearly across the nation, a lot at stake. What do you see the top issues on voters' minds as they head into midterms? So, Ed, because uh, I want to speak to you as a friend, I will say I think there are two ways to answer this question. I can answer it personally or I can answer it on the basis of, you know, the kind of material I work with every day at Fox, which is. Fox News data. And this week we had some fresh data. The question was, what are the main issues motivating you to vote? This is to registered voters September 9th through 12th. And the number one issue was inflation and high prices at 19%. The second issue, abortion at 16%. And then the big surprise to me is that democracy pops up. And People are concerned about the state of democracy in the country. So that's the hard data answer. If you're asking me, just as someone you've met, I think that there's a great deal of concern in general about are things going well in the country? You know, one of the things that I used to look at very attentively was right track, wrong track in terms of the, the politics of the country. And for years, it's been wrong track, but it's still very high, Ed. And you combine that with Biden's. His numbers are coming up a little bit, but they're very mediocre. Most of the country still disapproving. And you just have a sense that people just think that something's going on here. Something's wrong. So that's my personal take in. Let's talk about the third issue that you mentioned from the Fox data, the concern about democracy. Do you see that from a media standpoint? Because the media sort of has changed a little bit over time. And you've been involved, uh, I don't want to say forever, but a long time. Has the media changed on the way they're dealing with partisanship between Republicans and Democrats? And have we lost the art to disagree and still be civil? Well, I can't, man, I'm so glad that you put it that way. Um, I just find it very difficult to have many conversations now because it's reduced to the way that people interact on social media. You know, this phrase trolling, uh, which is imagine... I am to your left, Ed, politically. But if Ed calls me up and starts sort of, you know, abusing me and telling me I'm an idiot and I'm a socialist and a commie, you know, I mean, I'm like, why, Ed, why? What? How can I respond to you as a human being and try to make sense? Uh, Because it's, you know, I I guess it would invite me to respond in kind and I don't want to do it. So, yeah, I think because what has happened in my lifetime is we have gone to social media, the websites, Twitter, all that, you know, short, powerful bites that people remember. Most often those kinds of bites are 
not only acerbic, but uh, sometimes violent in nature. You know, I, you know, slam you, you know, I think I should, you know, cut off your head or whatever. That kind of stuff just doesn't invite conversation. It invites confrontation. Do you think the cancel culture type of attitude, both on the left and right, is impacting some of those discussions as well? Yeah. So, the, I mean, what's curious for me is I think that when you think about cancel culture, I you know, have been impacted by this. I was once fired by NPR for saying that after 9-11, I had great concerns about getting on a plane with people dressed in Muslim garb. And, uh, you know, to me, it was like, that's my truth. I, I, I didn't make that up. It's not like I'm trying to insult somebody. I'm just telling you how I felt as an American, right? And yet it was interpreted that way. But, you know, today, a lot of it, the cancel culture conversation comes down to like people who make, you know, obnoxious jokes. And then they're like, I just don't think they need to be canceled. I have never been a cancel. I am always one who is for honest debate and discussion. So if Ed says something, I don't like audience. I'm going to say, Ed, let's slow down a second. What do you really mean here? Because you know what? I think Ed's a good person. I think I trust that Ed's going to be a sharp person. Ed's a winner. Ed's going to try to get past me or defeat. All that's true. I know who Ed is, South Florida. But I think it's also true that Ed's a good person. And that my starting point is Ed is not trying to offend. He's trying to illuminate, trying to express his point of view. And I want to learn from Ed. So that's the way I, I view people. Let's talk a little bit about that. How do you think that impacts on these midterms? I mean, people have this overhang and obviously the vitriol between Republican Democrat is not limited to a one way. We had the Biden speech about uh, basically ridiculing anybody who's supportive of Trump. And then on the right, we have the same kind of conversation back, whether you're defining people uh, by some of the things that you just said, like a socialist or whatever it is. I mean, I guess if you talk about Bernie Sanders, I guess he wears that as a badge. Yeah. Honor, but, well, he, yeah, he is a socialist, right? He is a socialist. But I mean, but generally speaking, how do we lift that conversation up when we get it coming from whether it's President Trump or President Biden in that respect? How do we lift that conversation up? Well, I think the first thing is to be honest. Do you really want to have a conversation or do you want to score points? Do you want to skin the lib or do you want to talk with the lib? And for a lot of people, they think there's money to be made left and right, Ed, by humiliating, mocking the opponent. They don't see, in terms of media, the ratings going up because there's an honest, real conversation. Instead, they think people react like a cartoon to say, oh, look, the bad guy got it, and it's the bad guy I don't like. So if it's my good guy wins and their bad guy, terrific, and I like that show. you know. So you see that at the moment in terms of what drives not only Twitter and Facebook, but unfortunately, a lot of talk radio. You know, it's just one-sided. And I, again, I'm going to give something away here, Ed, but I'm 68 years old. When I was coming up, I was looking at people like Cronkite, right? And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if he's a liberal or a conservative. Later, it came out he was anti-Vietnam War. But I just thought, this is a great newsman. I'd like to learn. I'd like to hear what's the news and what's going on. That kind of common storytelling about the American story is anachronism at this point. That's archaic. It's gone. Now you are hearing certain stories that fit your mindset 
and people are affirming that mindset with the stories they select to tell you. And I think for smart people like you, Ed, you have to be aware, hey, wait a second, I'm bigger than just the stories that certain outlets are feeding me. I've got to go out and make sure I'm aware of the broader universe and the broader issues in the world. So that's how I try to get out of my own bubble, the one I occupy, and make sure that I'm able to have real conversations and hear people really feel their lives. Well, and the biggest issue I see is that there's a basic premise that used to be that everybody could start from the place that the United States was the greatest country in the world yeah. and provided extraordinary opportunity from an historic basis <laughs> than any other nation in history. Warts and all, let's put that aside for a second. But I'm not so sure people start from that place inside our political discourse. Well, I do. Uh, in terms of my personal life, my family, everything. I mean, we are just proud Americans. But I'm listening to you. And I think what you're saying is like people who introduce criticism over the race or the history of the United States and some of the wars or things, you know, mistakes we've made, as you said, warts and all. But to me, again, it's the greatest country in the world. And I, I think the fact that people want to come here is evidence of that beyond what Juan Williams or Ed thinks, right? Right, right. Okay, so, I mean, we have problems, we have human beings, human beings have differences and all that, but I, I don't start from a point of distaste for the, and I don't know, I, I'm, I don't know if people like that in general, I'm just trying to think, you know, like I've known radicals on the left, and actually I've known radicals on the right, it's interesting to me. I gave a speech recently because I wrote a book about Thurgood Marshall, former Supreme Court justice. And so I was asked to give a speech about him. And one of the questions that came from a mostly white conservative audience was about my faith in the future of the country. And I think they're concerned about the rapid rate of demographic shifts taking place in the United States. And one of the things I said, Ed, was that these kids, they have a strong it's unbelievable. They have a grip on the American dream. They think they are going to get it. The American dream is going to be realized for them and their families. And they are fighting for opportunities. I don't run into people who say, these kids who are coming in or, or kids who are here, I don't run into people who say, I hate this country. Or this, you know, I'm going to bomb something. I don't see it. I've not encountered it. And I try to listen. I run into people who say they don't feel treated fairly and that they wish they had more opportunities, but that's not hating America. Well, you mentioned the Supreme Court and you wrote a book about Thurgood Marshall. And I want to ask you, I'd be remiss in not asking you about how do we deal with the current status of the Supreme Court, given the leak over the abortion decision. And so what do you think of the current state of the court and, and how do we deal with this leak? Because it seems to me as a lawyer, I look at that with great concern because it impacts the inner workings of the court and how the court interacts with one another and how the justices treat one another and, and what kind of opinions they can bounce back and forth before the collective opinion is reached. And it's very concerning to me. What are your thoughts on the current status of the Supreme Court? Well, first, let me say we share this concern. Uh, obviously, you know, I have someone who knows people on the court to this day, and I think it has damaged the court greatly. Um, I think that normally, almost it, as a matter of form, they speak about each other as family, you know, that we're a family up here. Yeah, we may have disagreements. Like, you know, it's funny, but true. I mean, I remember talking to Justice Scalia 
and talking about Justice Marshall, and they're talking like they're friends, and you know, they dine together and all alike. And, and people say, "Oh my God, Scalia and Marshall! You know, how can that be?" You know, that was also true after uh, Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Right, Ginsburg and Scalia. And Scalia, they were best of friends. There you go. So I just say the public ha might have a different. Anyway, they emphasize this, but this leak, this leak suggests what you see in terms of the polarized political environment, the kind of attacking, undermining outside now seeping into the court. And we don't know who leaked it. Chief Justice Roberts has said there's an ongoing investigation and that there will be a report. And I'll be fascinated by it. Sounds like you're interested in it too, Ed. But the reason Ed and I are so interested in it, audience, is that it damages the capacity of the court to render justice in this country. Because from my side of the table, there's concern that there is a conservative supermajority, six conservative votes that dominate the court at this moment. That leak could have been somebody trying to undermine the authority of those six votes. And they are legitimate members of the Supreme Court. Or it could be somebody on the right trying to prevent voices from influencing what was then forming as a six-member vote on the abortion issue, on the Dobbs case. So you see, the politics can go either way. But in both cases, it's damaging to the trust necessary for people to sit down and say, hey, here's why I'm thinking as I'm thinking, because suddenly you realize this is going to be in the morning paper, and then the public's going to be trashing one view or another. This fits in with what you were asking me earlier about trust and having honest conversations. Yeah. And in the court, I don't see how the court can function the way it's functioned over the years without that trust between the justices and between the justices teams, their clerks and whatnot. I would assume that we're going to get a report and know who the leaker is because it's really a small pool of people. I believe there were 32 people identified that even had access to the information in order to even beat the potential leaker. So I'm assuming that that report should be relatively straightforward. I'm, I'm a little surprised about how long it's taken, to be fair. But let me ask this. The problem I see here is that we don't look at the longer term and the Supreme Court on these issues, whether it's the hottest issue of the day, whether it's abortion or something else. In the end, it's a longer term view. The process of the Supreme Court as the third branch of government must be protected, regardless of how hot a particular issue is in any given day. We need to take a longer view on it. And operations of the court, to me, are vital to our democracy. Don't you agree? Boy, Ed, I think you're a lawyer. I think you're I think you're a man of the law. You're you're just you're trying to fool us all. You you believe in the law and you believe in the Constitution and you're an American. I know who you are. And I believe in the law and the Constitution. I think the fact that we have been a democracy for you know 250 plus years is evidence of the fact that we're a nation of laws and not of men. It's not just a matter of my feeling, my attitude, my opinion, but there's law and you have to hold to the law. That is so important. And so one of the things that greatly concerns me on the point we're discussing is the decreasing faith in American institutions. It goes beyond the courts, but now the courts are included. Right. And you see confidence in the court declining. To me, again, if you don't trust that you can get justice, then you're starting to undermine the very foundations of our country. And that's damaging. 
And that's where the right is upset about what happened with Trump. But I think we're going to have to see what happens. But with the, some of those institutions that are being questioned now are the FBI and the Supreme Court and Congress. But we're a long way from Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan getting together and having a drink as two Irish Americans and, and figuring out what the best course of the next piece of legislation is, aren't we? Well, so now you're giving away your age. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think that it's hard for people to remember that Congress, it used to be that these guys dined together, talked together. Yeah, they had differences, but it wasn't at knife's point. It was more like, you know, I'm representing my district. Here are the interests of the people, my constituents, versus the interest of your constituents. And all of our constituents are Americans. And uh, at the moment, these people don't even talk to each other. And you go up there, I mean, it's it's kind of scary. They, they vilify each other, in fact. I don't like it. But it, this is why this conversation is so important. I mean, I appreciate the invitation. Well, I tell you what, I do appreciate it. it was a privilege and honored that we spent some time together. I appreciate the time you've given us and I know my audience will appreciate it. Thank you so much for all you do and the debate that you certainly add on Fox. Before I go, Ed, I just want to say thank you to you because I am a big supporter of charter school, school choice. What I hear and I hear from someone I think we know in common, uh, former Governor Jeb Bush, is that you are also a big school choice person. The innovation that comes with school choice, you know, the refusal to accept mediocrity and all the rest. God bless you. You know, I just think that is so important. And again, thank you. This kind of debate, I wrote a book called Muzzle, The Assault on Honest Debate. This is Honest Debate, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We look forward to speaking to you soon, maybe recapping the midterms after all that happens. So uh, we look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you. Appreciate it. Politics and Sunshine is a production of the Fort Lauderdale law firm Trip Scott, serving Florida and beyond for over 50 years. Please be sure to like and share this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time for another fresh edition of Trip Scott's Politics and Sunshine.